You can turn your Bible to John chapter 4, or we'll look at the text that's printed in the bulletin also. It's uh, John 4, 1 through 26. Continuing our series, picking up once again in John's Gospel, which we uh, sort of hit pause on during Advent, and then snow day. So, John 4. Um, this is one of my favorite accounts of what kind of person Jesus is, even just on the surface of it, really. Uh, it's a deeply moving story. It's the kind of thing you'd imagine they'd make a movie of, uh, a story like this, uh, someone being treated with such dignity and kindness, who had surely long since forgotten what it felt like to be treated with such dignity and kindness. Uh, but um, you go deeper, it's, it's even more profound when you consider the biblical themes that are converging here in this episode of the Gospels, the great problems and needs of all of our humanity being met by God himself in the gracious person of his son, Jesus Christ. The scripture isn't given to us just so that we can think correct things about Jesus, uh, sort of distantly or abstractly, or uh, it's, it's not given to us merely to witness someone else's interaction with him. This, this is given to us so that we can encounter Jesus, so that we can know him personally, and so that we can know God through him, because he reveals God to us. That's a, a huge theme in John's gospel. So there's something deep in our nature. There's something deep in our nature, something uh, fundamental to the human reality that needs to be restored, it needs to be fixed uh, something broken that's, that needs to be made right, something that we can't do for ourselves. It's so deep within us. It's a change that we can't affect ourselves. If you think God is, uh, is just a help to you uh, to make your life a little bit better, then you've got the wrong idea about God. You've got the wrong idea about Jesus. Probably got the wrong idea about what you're looking to get here this morning. Um, if you think that God is just a help, um, something a little extra to make your life a little better. <clears throat> we're meant to worship God. That means our whole lives are, are meant to be ordered on him. He's supposed to be the center, the reference point for all of our life. Everything that we think and feel and say and do, and that's meant to be not something that's extracted painfully from us, but it's meant to be a delight, not a drudgery. It's meant to be a delight. Making God the center of our lives. To, ma to make a change in us like that, that's the deep human problem that we've, we don't do that, and it's a big change that needs to take place in us if that's going to happen. To make a change like us in that, uh, in us like that, that God will have to save us from ourselves. He'll have to save us from our very selves, and the only one who can do that is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And so we're going to talk this morning about salvation, and we're going to talk about it in terms of um, worship, in terms of our worship, everything in our life being centered on who God is and what he reveals uh, to us. So let me pray, then we'll read the scripture. <clears throat> Father, we do need your help now and always as we consider your word. Your word is clear to us in many ways. It makes our salvation clear to us. And that, that's not the big problem. Uh, we come to you with hearts that are... Uh, dragging, that are resisting, that are even uh, at war with you sometimes. And so we pray that you would overcome all of our resistance to receiving your word and being changed by it into the likeness of Christ our Savior, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour, which was noon. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that's saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in, Jeru- that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews, but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Praise be to you, O Christ. So there's a a lot here going on that we're not going to be able to talk about. Um, A lot about worship, about the last few verses that we're not going to be able to talk about. But that's that's what this is about. Worship has been... um, Worship has been pretty much always a major problem for humanity, the central problem for humanity. It's always been a problem. It's not just that people have been reluctant to thank God or praise God or obey God. It's, uh, it's that people really have wanted to have nothing at all to do with God. And so we search for significance. We do it apart from God. We look to establish our identity Apart from God, we grasp for glory and security and happiness and love apart from God. 
If there's life to be found, we'll take it, assuming that God doesn't come with it. And when you wrap all those things together, the things that we look for apart from God, significance, identity, glory, security, and happiness, and love, and life, you wrap all those things together, it becomes a deep matter for our worship, for our very existence as human beings that are made in God's image, made to worship God. We're meant to find all of this, all these things that we're looking for in life, we're meant to find all of it in Him, in the one true God, the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We're meant to worship Him alone and to live in such a relationship of communion with Him that His own fullness fills us. And we delight then to thank Him and praise Him and obey Him and to live with Him and to live for Him. But like I said, that's always been a problem for humanity and the history of our universal worship problem is traced very clearly throughout the scriptures. Um, you, could, you could almost turn randomly. I know maybe this is a standard practice for a lot of people in their, uh, in their devotional reading. I'm not trying to make fun of you. You could almost turn randomly to any page in the Old Testament and drop your finger on a place and read about somebody's idolatry, read about somebody's worship problem. We looked a few weeks ago during Advent at Hosea, at, at his prophecy. And uh, what was going on there is that the northern kingdom of Israel, remember history, sorry, I've got to repeat this every time. Uh, I've got to look it up every time for myself. Uh, uh, so, so the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah had already gone their separate ways um, religiously, politically, uh, socially in a lot of ways. And the northern kingdom, Israel, was about to be conquered by the Assyrians. The southern kingdom, Judah, would hold out for a little while longer and then later be con conquered by the Babylonians. But the northern kingdom, Israel, they retain the name Israel. Um, <clears throat> they were about to be conquered by the Assyrians. And the explicit reason given for it in the scriptures is their idolatry. The fact that they don't worship the one true God, they trade for others, other things things that people have created, things that God has created. Anything other than the one true God, they'll worship it. So it's their idolatry that is the explicit reason for them being conquered by the Assyrians. Long ago, long before uh, Hosea wrote, they had departed from God's word. They departed from his revealed will in their worship. They would refused to go to the temple in Jerusalem. That was the one place all the Jews were supposed to know that that's where you go to for worship, for these, these annual pilgrimages and these feasts. You go to the temple, you go to Jerusalem. They'd refuse to do that because it was in the southern kingdom. Uh, but, but really, it's because they just wanted to do things their own way, right? So they had set up for themselves alternative worship sites, and uh, the main one of these was called Mount Gerizim, which is actually probably the setting for our passage this morning, Mount Gerizim. And they were insistent that they, the, the, the northern kingdom of Israel, they were faithfully worshiping God while in reality they were ignoring him and abandoning him and betraying their relationship with him and their idolatry. So in the book of Hosea, again, which we looked at a few weeks ago, their worship problem was depicted as spiritual adultery. Spiritual adultery, like a faithless spouse. The main object lesson being Hosea's 
faithless spouse, his unfaithful wife, Gomer. Right? That's the main object lesson in Hosea's prophecy. So just like adultery makes your life a total wreck, and maybe you've imagined that, maybe you've actually seen that or done that or um, at, at least probably seen it on TV, right? Adultery makes your life a total wreck, and in the same way, your spiritual life disintegrates and totally falls apart as a result of spiritual adultery, as a result of idolatry. Your worship problem, that's what this is, your worship problem causes big problems for all your life. It turns everything else on its head. Everything else is backwards and not the way that it's supposed to be because of our worship problem, because of that that central problem in our lives, our spiritual adultery or our idolatry. If you don't find your significance and your identity and glory, security, happiness, love, and life, if you don't find all of that freely, up front, in your communion with the living God, the one true God, then you will effectively, to use Hosea's kind of strong language, you will whore yourself out to get it wherever you can. Those things you're meant to find in your relationship with God through your worship in him, you will whore yourself out to get those things elsewhere, just like everyone else has always done, including God's own people, Israel. So, again, in Hosea's time, he gave them up to the consequences of their worship problems. He gave them up to, eventually, would be ultimately a Syrian invasion and, and conquering. He gave them up to the consequences of their worship problems and let them disintegrate and fall apart. So when Assyria invaded and conquered, they brought people in from all sorts of different kind of pagan places. They brought people in. They didn't just take take Israelites out and scatter them around. They brought other people in and imported with them their cultures and their religions. And the people of Israel who remained in that land, they were made to intermarry and to compromise their national integrity. This was a pretty effective strategy if you're taking over a land. Uh, How to wipe out any kind of resistance, just make them dissipate through this, this uh, cultural compromise, they were made to syncretize their beliefs with the foreigners and their cultures and their religions. Ultimately, they were made to lose their anchor and their identity as God's people. So it was their worship problems, very explicitly in the scriptures, their worship problems resulted in their disintegration, their, their falling apart as a society. And in Jesus' time, the place where all this happened was known as Samaria. The place where all of this took place was Samaria. And the Samaritans boasted about their lineage. They boasted about their link to Jacob, especially one of the great fathers of the faith, their inheritance as uh, the sons of of Jacob, the sons of Joseph. If you remember, going even further back in Old Testament history, Jacob's favorite son was Joseph. Um, Joseph went off to Egypt and basically saved the world. And he had his sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, who took his part of the inheritance when all of God's people went back into the land. Ephraim and Manasseh are in this place now called Samaria. Right, so it's the sons of Joseph, the favorite son of Jacob, 
that they basically say, he's our hero, he's our guy, we have celebrity status because, look, Jacob, Joseph, Ephraim, Manasseh, we're still good, right? So they boast in their lineage, and then they have their own version of the scriptures, the first five books of the Old Testament, the five books of Moses, and that was it. And they kind of had their own version of those, not exactly the same as what the Jews had. So they had their own version of the scriptures, they had their own version of Israelite history, and they insisted and continue to insist, actually, even to this day, if you go there now, that Mount Gerizim is the place where, where people worship. Not, not Jerusalem, not the Temple Mount there. Mount Gerizim. The Samaritans still have this sort of parallel, idolatrous, ultimately, version of Jewish history and scriptures and worship. But they're wrong. They're wrong. Sometimes it's hard to call people wrong, but they were wrong. Jesus said they were wrong. Uh, And the Jews were right. Jesus said it, right? But even though the Jews were, were right, in a very important sense... They, uh, they were also wrong because they were self-righteous about being right. The Jews who said, no, no, these are the scriptures, this is the history, this is where you worship, you come to the temple, you do it this way, they were wrong because of their attitudes, really. They were wrong because they were self-righteous about being right, and they despised the Samaritans. When Jesus says, or when, when the gospel says that the, the Jews have no dealings with Samaritans, that's kind of an understatement. Right? There's several places in the Gospels where their enmity, their deep enmity, is pointed out. The Jews hated the Samaritans, in some ways viewed them worse than just normal pagans out there who were just doing their own thing. <clears throat> um, I had a professor in uh, college. He was my Greek professor, and he was from Greece, and he referenced this, this long-lasting strife, this, the, the war, really, the enmity between Greeks and Turks, he said, yeah, Greeks, you know, we're Greek Orthodox. We all know every, every human being is made in God's image, and you're supposed to treat people who are made in God's image, you're supposed to treat human beings with respect and love. But with the Turks, well, that's easy. They're not human. We treat them as dogs because that's what they are. We write them off. That's the kind of relationship. That's the kind of enmity and hatred and, and despising that took place between the Jews and the Samaritans. They're, they're sort of less than human. So we're justified in our hatred of them, in our avoiding them and, and avoiding contact with them at all costs. So the Samaritans were outcasts. In their own land, the Samaritans were outcasts. They were ostracized. They were a rejected people. So, of course, Jesus had to go there. He had to go there. Yeah, it's the most direct route when it says he's going from Jerusalem in the south up to Galilee in the north. It is the most direct route to go through that land, to go through Samaria, but it was fairly standard practice for Jews to go the long way around, actually across the River Jordan, then go north and, uh, <clears throat> and get into Galilee because the, the Samaritans were perpetually, ritually unclean, and you don't want to contaminate yourself by having contact with them. So we're going to go around, take the long way, which is a hard thing to do when everything's walking in a desert, <laughs> right? So... <clears throat> To avoid ritual contamination, they would go the long way around. And the, the, the language here in our text when it says Jesus had to go through Samaria, that, that language does have something of divine necessity to it. It was necessary. Not just it was on the way. 
it was necessary that Jesus go through Samaria. He had very important business there. It's a hot, dry land, and Jesus, being fully human, was weary. So he sat by a well with no way to draw water. Instead of going the the last half mile into town, he sat by the well with no way to draw water, and he sent all of his friends, at least his 12 disciples, but usually there's more people tagging along. He sent all of his friends into the city a half mile away to get food. How many disciples does it take to screw in a light bulb? Uh, Apparently, all of them, when Jesus wants to arrange for a meeting, there will be a very sensitive, uh, rather delicate conversation with a Samaritan woman. All the disciples go in to do what really only two of them had to go to do, or they could have all just walked into town, but Jesus sat by the well waiting. So in Jewish culture, this woman who came out to the well This woman in particular is worse than a nobody. She's worse than most Samaritans even. She's she's a woman, and it was unheard of for men uh, to address women in public. Christianity Christianity has really radically uh, and drastically changed relationships between men and women. Um, But in, in that time and in that place, men didn't just go up to strangers, women, and start talking to them. That was inappropriate. She's a Samaritan, and Jews had no dealings with Samaritans because they were ritually unclean. Um, And she's not exactly decent people either. She's not exactly decent people. Big stigma came with stories like hers, and honestly, they still come with stories like hers. Married how many times? (laughs) I can understand like one divorce. Married so many times and currently shacking up with a new guy, which was, I mean, it's inappropriate. Completely inappropriate and unacceptable and unheard of in this culture, right, in that culture. So even among her own people, she's not welcome. She's an outcast among other outcasts. She's out fetching water in the heat of the day instead of during the cool hours when all the other women would have been there because she's an outcast among all the outcasts. She's got a whole host of things working against her, some things outside of her control, some of her own, her own doing, all of which were apparent obstacles to relationships with other people, let alone relationship with God. She had come to expect rejection everywhere. Her life is defined by rejection. That's what her story says. And that hurt so badly she continued to throw herself after men just to taste the acceptance and the security that she was so desperate for. So she's Gomer. I mean, she's Gomer from Hosea. She's Israel from all the history. She's every one of us. Spiritual adultery, worship problems, leading to this life falling apart. And Jesus knows all this. That's clear from his conversation with her. I mean, he planned this thing. He staged every, every word of it. 
He knows all of this about her. He knows all of this because he's the Lord, and he still arranged for the meeting. He still wanted to meet this woman. The Son of God came into the world to meet people, to be with people like this, people like us. And he began to overcome all the obstacles, all the barriers, to reach past all the reasons that there were for rejecting this woman, leaving her in her own, being outcast. Um, He asked her for a drink of water. I mean, that's vulnerability. That's personal. And it's very purposeful. This well is nice, great place to sit and meet. Let's, Let's have a conversation about water. She's stunned that he's even talking to her. Um, He says, if you knew the gift of God, if you knew who I was, you would ask and I would give you living water. Living water. So living water is a a, kind of biblical code language for the Holy Spirit, actually. The, The life of God alive in us and with us. It's a picture of his refreshing, life giving presence. Living water is like the Holy Spirit in the Scriptures. And uh, a little later in John's Gospel, Jesus, it said, uh, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. So, The Holy Spirit, he's the giver of life. He's the life of God himself in us as a flowing river, the fountain of living water, was promised throughout the Old Testament to those who would turn away from their idols and turn to to worship the true and living God. So worship problem, no Holy Spirit. Worship restored, Holy Spirit. And at first, the woman couldn't see it. She couldn't see him couldn't see exactly what he was getting at. Her greatest concerns were more immediate. She, she felt these as more pressing concerns, more mundane concerns. And she interpreted his, his spiritual offer as a merely physical one. Right? She, what he offered spiritually, she heard him not talking about spiritual things. She, she heard him talking about mundane, earthly, just merely physical stuff, right? <clears throat> it's just like those who hear Jesus say, I am the bread of life. And they say, great, make us lunch, which they do in the Gospels. Um, she would like to be relieved of the daily burden of drawing water for a lot of reasons, It's just hard for her to get water. How nice would it be never to need a drink of water again? She would have to come out there either in the cool of the day when all the other women are there or in the heat of the day when it's miserable outside. Just It would be great never to need a drink of water again. We do something similar. We do something similar when we reduce Christ's offer of eternal life and relationship with God. When we reduce that to an offer of a little help here and there with my life's project, my version of life where preferably interaction with God is kept to a minimum, a manageable minimum. So he offers offers prayer to us. We couldn't pray before. Now we can pray. 
Jesus offers prayer to us as a way to experience relationship and communion with God, and we'll take it as a way to get stuff and things, maybe things and stuff, usually to use as distractions to distract us from our relationship with God. That's what prayer serves to function in our lives, right? Use it to get stuff that make our life easier instead of to enjoy relationship with God through it. He offers his word so that we'll find comfort in his grace, a comfort that no one can take away from us in his revelation about himself. He offers his word for that purpose. We'll take it as a way to feel better about ourselves compared to other people, completely ignoring the spiritual relational purpose of his revelation, the scriptures. He offers salvation from sin. Do you even know what that means? He offers salvation from sin. We'll gladly take a conscience that's unburdened by guilt so we could be a little bit happier all day, every day. But he's offering himself. He's offering himself to us. He's offering God to us. And we're blind fools to reduce that to a few ways to have an easier life. Thankfully, he has cosmic-level patience with blind fools and forgives people like us. He forgives us. She asks him, what, are you greater than Jacob? Yeah, he's greater than Jacob. Jacob gave them clean water to drink. That's great. Jesus is the one who made water. (laughs) That, That wasn't meant to be a... At the beginning of time in creation, he created water as a symbol of his divine goodness. Water has a purpose. The fact that water exists at all is meant to symbolize life and symbolize God's gracious goodness to us. Right? Jesus is the one who made that, who created that. The water that people drink from the well, from Jacob's well, great well, still there, still serving water to thirsty people, The water that people drink from that well serves its purpose, which is temporary relief. Temporary relief, which is actually meant to be symbolic of the relief we're supposed to find in God, right? The living water that Jesus gives wells up to eternal life. This is real water. This is real relief. This is real life that Jesus is talking about. He himself is the well of salvation. He's the one that life comes from, like a river and like springs, and like a fountain. And he's the one who gives the Holy Spirit without measure in all of his refreshing and life-giving presence to those who thirst for him. And those who thirst for him, and those who receive the Holy Spirit from Jesus, when they ask for this gift, they will be absolutely satisfied. Absolutely. And forever satisfied. Maybe she's starting to get it. She says, Sir... Give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to drink water and draw water. Maybe she's not getting it. Right? Maybe she's not quite there yet. That's okay. He's still patient and gracious toward those who don't get it. He will get her where she needs to be, and he will get you where you need to be. All right, we're talking about water. Really, we're talking about eternal life and salvation and worship. So, go call your husband and come here. Awkward. 
right? This is not, this is not a social faux pas. Right? He didn't make a mistake. He's not changing the subject. This is not a non sequitur. It follows perfectly. He knows that ultimately, like Gomer, Hosea's faithless wife, like Israel, God's faithless bride, like all of us, this woman has deep worship problems. That's ultimately the problem. He knows it. Deep worship problems like spiritual adultery. It expresses itself in her life as a desperate search for, for romance, for acceptance, right? for love from men in her life. Maybe your worship problem expresses itself differently. Maybe it's through the acceptance of peers at school. You'll do anything to get it. Maybe it's finding your identity as a parent. You'll do anything to make those little kids reflect better on you. Maybe it's, um, maybe it's through your education or your career path. You'll do anything to get this kind of life. Maybe it's through the accumulation of possessions. You'll, you'll do anything. You'll plan out for months to get that possession. Uh, maybe it's through substance abuse. Maybe it's, maybe it's by being religiously and morally impressive. You'll do anything to feel good about yourself compared to other people, spiritually. Whatever the case, we've all got worship problems. That's clear. And that's the heart of the problem that Jesus gets at with this poor woman when he, when he says, go find your husband and bring him to me. He exposes her. She didn't want that. She didn't want that part of the conversation to be brought up. He exposes her. He makes her terribly uncomfortable, but it's not to shame her. She's used to that. This isn't that. It's not to laugh at her. It's not to reject her. He opens the wound, which is painful. He opens that wound to clean it out, and he cuts deep because he loves her. He won't let us alone either. He will do what needs to be done for your good to bring you to that place where you will worship. He offers her true acceptance, something that she's been striving to find, gives it freely to her. Surprise of all surprises that this guy out here in the wilderness at the well, that he would offer her true acceptance True healing, true restoration of true worship. She has been getting it wrong. All Samaritans have. Not just abstractly, theologically, personally, at very deep levels, at every level. She's been getting it wrong. In fact, even the Jews who have gotten it right by comparison are, are going to have their conception of worship utterly changed. Everybody needs their conception of worship utterly changed. All people everywhere, not just people there on Mount Gerizim where the Samaritans insisted that worship took place, or not just in in Jerusalem where the Jews insisted more rightly that worship take place. All people everywhere will be able to rightly worship, to have their lives reordered and recentered and set right and find all the fullness of God filling them when they worship the Father in spirit and in truth, that is, in the Holy Spirit, through the one who is the truth, Jesus Christ. All kinds of broken people, all kinds of sinners, everyone with a worship problem, and that's you, and that's me, 
we may find true communion with God, and that's the, the gift of God that Jesus says, if, if you just knew the gift that I'm here to give you, you'd ask it and I'd give it to you. And you would be completely satisfied. The hour is coming, Jesus said. The hour is coming. In John's Gospel, this is always a reference to the hour of the cross, the great hour of our salvation. This is the hour when those who are thirsty receive the water of life because it's the hour when Jesus, who's the well of salvation himself, he cried out, I thirst, and the spear pierced his side and outflowed blood and water. This is the hour of our great satisfaction because it's the hour when Jesus, the Son of God, knowing full well what was happening and knowing full well for whom he did what he was doing, he gave up his life for the sake of love to accept people like you, to give you everything in your relationship with God. Tim Keller is a quote that's at the beginning of the bullet. He says, to be loved but not known is superficial and unsatisfying. To be known and rejected is our greatest nightmare. But to be known all the way down and loved infallibly, endlessly, is heaven. Jesus didn't reject us. He didn't walk away. He arranged the meeting. And he bore our shame himself in order to grant us the full acceptance of God. And the Samaritan woman couldn't believe that someone could love her like that, let alone God, but it was true. She'd come to know that. We'll talk more about her next week, her response, and what happened with her after this. She came to know that God would love her like that. He does love us, and he overcame every obstacle to give himself to us, and this is the God that you're called to worship. This is the God that you are invited to commune with. The only true and living God, he's revealed to us in the grace of his son, Jesus Christ. Our worship problem is solved. It's a deep problem. We couldn't fix it. Jesus has done it. Our worship is renewed and restored. We have real access to the divine life of blessed communion with God because Jesus went out of his way to become one of us, to come to us, to be with us, to reach past all the reasons for rejecting us in order to give us this gift, a free gift of his grace. Ask him, and he'll give you this refreshing, life-giving water, and you will be satisfied. Amen. Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus, we ask you now that you would give us this water, the water of which you speak. Give us the Holy Spirit. Give us life with God that lasts forever. Give us the river of life flowing from our heart, the fountains of the springs of the water of life bubbling up within us that will never stop. Slake our deep thirst for God. Make us to know your great love and acceptance of us as a gift of your grace. And we pray that uh, as you do so, that as our lives are filled with all the fullness of God himself, 
that you would make us conduits of your love, that we would be able to share this water with others as well and point them to you in whom is life eternal, we pray in your name. Amen.